fact that I think our all our society is run by insane people for insane objects, mm. objectives. If, if anybody can put on paper what they are actually trying to do, you know, and how what they think they're doing, mm. I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. And I think they're all insane. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is The FOMO Show. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is a podcast we're going to hear about blockchain, cryptocurrency, emerging markets, and future tech in relatively plain English. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Now, everything in this show is in the show notes, so you can find links to the stuff we're talking about and timestamps the relevant parts, so you can always skip ahead or find it later. This episode, we are going to be talking about a number of things. We've got a, uh, a really interesting article on the explanation of price, hash rate, and uh, Bitcoin mining network dynamics later on. Um, we're also going to be covering a bunch of news, including um, government-issued cryptocurrencies and, uh, yeah, that eponymous word, um, institutional. In our privacy and security section, um, I witnessed a live hack, and it was really cool. There are some very smart people out there. Yep. <laughs> very smart. People yep. can just break things. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. So what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks, mate? I've been doing a lot of stuff at work, um, doing marketing for an IT consulting firm. So, yeah, there's been quite a lot of stuff going on there. What else happened? Um, it was your birthday. Yeah. So, I had a birthday. I'm officially a day older than I was the previous day. Mm. Um, so, that was great. And what did you do for your birthday? Uh, so, I went down to Cabarita, which is uh, northern New South Wales in Australia, right on the coast beautiful area of beach i stayed on a farm and um there were dogs and there were cows so i was a very happy person <laughs> that's good yeah what have you been up to the last couple of weeks i've been up to a bunch as well we um we actually had tone vase here a couple of weeks ago who's a, a quite a famous now bitcoin trader right uh, so a lot of the people i know who are quite into trading now say they learned most of what they know from tone wow and he's one of the og Bitcoin guys from I think around about 2012 or 2013 was when ah, he kind of got back into it. So right. he got into trading quite early. And uh, yeah, we had him here in Brisbane. He ran a uh, workshop, a trading workshop, which mm. apparently sold out. Wow. There was a poker tournament as well. Um, and there was also a meetup on the Friday night. And yeah, I moderated that and we had some really good discussion that will be coming out on a, I think, a podcast or a video on YouTube in the not too distant future. So mm. if that's out by the time the show goes live, we'll put it up on the in the show notes and mm. you can go check it out because it's a really good, really good night. Uh, yeah. A lot of amazing information and we just got to sit down on a panel and talk to both Tone and Alex Fetsky, who is wow, yeah. the founder a of genius. Alex. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll be hearing a lot more about him in the near future, I think. Good. Yeah. Um, so that was great. There was also a crypto conference at Noosa, ah. which is on the Sunshine Coast here in Australia oh, last week. Yeah. And uh, so we went up to that and there was a lot of people from the community here in Brisbane and some other people flew up and it was really good. Really good little time. Great to be on the beach having a crypto conference. Wow. That was a different experience. Wow. That, that was brilliant. There were a few projects there pitching. Um, 
I'm blanking on all the names of the projects at the moment. Elastos was one of them. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, there were some other ones up there, but it was, it was good. It was really good. A little bit of disclosure. This is not investment, <laughs> accounting, tax, um, any kind of advice, really. Um, it's not even advice. So full disclosure, we're personally invested in different cryptocurrencies, some of which we do talk about on this show, but if we talk about it, it doesn't mean you should buy it. So do your research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and avoid the fear of missing out. If you're new around here and new to crypto, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues until episode eight. It'll give you some grounding in the fundamentals and help you understand what on earth we're talking about. Hmm. And look, if you do listen to those first eight episodes, there are also segments that we've done after that that are on kind of following on from some of those basics. So you can always feel free to download the other episodes and you can jump ahead where you need to from mm. the show notes. So you can jump straight through to the features that interest you. I think we did a really interesting one on privacy coins around about episode nine, didn't we? Yeah, that was episode nine was a cool episode. Still yeah. my favourite to date, but um, yeah. Yeah, and we did gaming another time yeah, and all sorts yeah, of other yeah. things. There's so. some cool features. We've yeah. got more than 40 hours worth of audio content now. Yeah. If you've made it this far, <laughs> good on you. Oh, get we, we have a have a medal. Yikes! News. So the United Arab Emirates government has announced two really interesting things at their second annual government meetings, which they held in Abu Dhabi. Um, so the, uh, just as a bit of background, the UAE has about 9.4 million people in their population and $696 billion GDP in 2017. So it's not an insignificant country. Um, but yeah, their Minister of uh, State for Artificial Intelligence added that they want to you know, adopt AI and blockchain technologies in all the economic, health, educational, and other vital sectors. So they've brought in a few initiatives, and yeah, it's kind of interesting. They, you know, training for employees. You know, they're also doing a survey to find out which jobs are most impacted by the, the, these technologies, mm. so they can actually reduce the number of employees working in those jobs and retrain them for other areas. Wow. The key point is that they're looking to transform fifty percent of government transactions onto the blockchain by 2021. Right. I mean, that's a big aim, first of all. Because mm. I guess at the end of the day, they're just a couple of cities in the middle of the desert, aren't they? Yeah. That's kind of it. Cities are impossible to build without oil. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got to find a way, now that oil is, you know, you look at 10 years, 15 years from now, oil will be nowhere near as important as it is to the current global economy. They've got to find new ways to make money. Mm, mm. It's interesting they've even got a lot of training courses. Uh, like they're mandating that uh, there be one day or one week training programs to train staff mm. across all professional levels. That's crazy. Absolutely yeah, so crazy. They're taking this pretty seriously. Yeah. So next bit of news, the IMF has said that governments could set up their own cryptocurrencies. Uh, and this is an article from The Guardian. And... Uh, Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the IMF, praises rebel technology as safe, cheap, and potentially semi-anonymous. And she said the government should consider offering their own cryptocurrencies to prevent the systems becoming havens for fraudsters and money launderers. Yeah. So, yeah, in her words, the advantage is clear. Your payment would be immediate, safe, cheap, and potentially semi-anonymous, and central banks would retain a sure footing in payments. In addition, they'd offer more level playing field for competition, la 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 And, yeah, so she's saying this is public-private partnership at its best. Um, I guess our comment is if there's a central bank that can control it, then the central bank can put in negative interest rates 
Easily. I think we're going to see more of this. And I definitely know that Australia is talking about this and there's other countries talking about this, getting their own cryptocurrency. But I think it kind of misses the point of what cryptocurrencies actually mm. are, which is a ledger of transactions which can't be controlled by any one party, which everyone has visibility into, um, where there's no central bank um, that sets policy and holds people's money and fractionally lends it at the expense of everyone else and prints it when they want. But at least they're still selling air. (laughs) It's in the IMF's best interest, isn't it, to make sure that the central banks stay relevant? Yeah. Because if there's no central banks, there's no IMF, is there? I don't know. I guess not. In Malaysia, your cryptocurrency must go through your bank. Um, So, yeah, if you think your cryptocurrency is not being watched by a central authority, think again, says ZDNet. Yes, as reported by a local publication, the New Straits Times, cryptocurrencies introduced in the country of Malaysia will have to pass through the Bank Negira Malaysia before being introduced to the public. So according to the country's finance minister, the Malaysian government and this bank must be careful, you know, the ramifications of cryptocurrencies are yet to be fully understood, but they said don't try and do something without guidelines from this bank and commit something against the law. They're not. He says that they uh, they're not trying to attempt to obstruct the use of cryptocurrency at all, but uh, it has to be used in relation to existing laws. Blah blah blah. So it's essentially what they're saying is, please don't use cryptocurrency and keep oh. using the banks. Yeah. So next bit of news: Asus is uh, deciding to lean in to the whole crypto mining thing, and uh, and they're actually now allowing gamers to mine crypto with their idle graphics cards. Yeah, so they announced the other week that it's they've partnered with uh, a mining app provider, Quantum Cloud, to allow gamers to earn passive income by allowing access to their graphics cards when they're not being used for other PC tasks. So earnings would be paid out via PayPal or WeChat. Yeah, the app uses gamers' GPUs to collectively power cloud-based miners, in theory at least, uh, to allow them to generate profit, giving card owners a percentage, and the privacy of the customer's financial data on the app is protected under the GDPR, ASUS stressed as well in, in saying this, which is which is a funny little addendum to the article. Hmm. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we, we hear a lot about uh, people downloading malware onto their computer and it mining Monero behind the scenes and then not even realising it. But this is kind of going the other way now. It's saying, well, and look, the other thing too is that sending mining rigs up is a little bit technical. Like it's gotten a lot easier, but it still is quite technical. So ASUS are essentially saying, well, we'll meet... We'll meet you where you're at and you can just use our app and just mine mine while you're not using it. Mm. This is good. I think it's good. I think it's great. So Amazon are getting into the blockchain after a long time of saying they weren't going to um, with the Quantum Ledger database and a managed blockchain. Yeah, so the company announced a new service at the Amazon AWS reInvent conference Essentially, the service offers an append-only immutable journal that tracks the history of all changes. So all the changes are going to be cryptographically chained and verifiable, but it seems like it is a, a lot more managed than some of the other blockchain solutions out there. And it has a central trusted authority. So, um, yeah. Because it, it, it seems to me like it's, just, it's very similar to um, micro, what Microsoft's offering, mm. which is the Azure blockchain workbench, and they're kind of... Just, just getting in on it. What I don't get is Amazon have, well, AWS have like 200-odd products. You know, you've got cloud storage, um, you've got DNS, you've got, you know, Route 53, whatever it is. You've got just load balancing. You've got Elastic Beanstalk. Ridiculous names. 
you got all these hundreds of products, and now they're just trying to add another one just because their competitors are doing it. Yeah. But, but it completely misses the point. That's what amazes me. Look, it's right there on their first slide that there's a central trusted authority. I mean, if there's a central trusted authority, you don't need a blockchain. It's a ledger. It's just a... If you're using blockchain for it, it's just going to be an expensive, unwieldy database. Mm. Because a central trusted authority is Google Docs on a Google Docs spreadsheet. That's essentially... Like, if you want to, if you want to settle transactions on a central trusted authority... Use a MongoDB database hosted by AWS. Generally, the, the, the biggest use case for having a distributed ledger hmm. like a blockchain is that you have a number of parties and you want to exchange value with each other on a platform that no one controls. Well, that everyone controls. No one or everyone. It kind of ends up becoming the same thing. Uh, that's open, auditable, and you know that you're, none of the other parties can... Uh, can go into that platform and reverse a transaction or double spend or change something. So to then say that you've got a got a, a, a blockchain um, or even a distributed ledger database that has a central trusted authority, I don't know. And along that vein, um, Microsoft are introducing the Azure Blockchain Development Kit. So um, yeah, they've announced this built on their serverless technologies and seamlessly integrates blockchain into the best of Microsoft according to their sales stuff and basically it extends the capabilities of their blockchain developer templates and blockchain workbench tool um, which basically incorporates Azure services for key management, off-chain identity, data monitoring, messaging APIs into a big architecture that can be used to quickly build blockchain-based apps. This is um, following on from their blockchain workbench which we mm. we highlighted geez it wouldn't it be a year ago now I think it's, it's a long a while, time yeah. ago yeah um, but they're a long way. I, I think they're honestly a long way ahead of where Amazon are mm. and a lot of the others are. They've got a very robust system. Um, you can very quickly spin up nodes. You can. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of smart contracts that are just ready to plug into some of their systems. But again, obviously, you're still using a centralized database, although they, they do generally go a step further and allow all the different parties to to have access to the nodes and make sure that everyone's seeing everything. But... Uh, yeah, look, people must be using it because they keep expanding it. So unless they've got too much money and they're just, they're just expanding it until people do start using it. But uh, sure. yeah. So next bit of news, Ohio has become the first state in the United States of America to accept Bitcoin for tax payments. So companies that want to take part in the program just need to go to ohiocrypto.com, register to pay in crypto, whatever taxes your corporate hearts desire. Yeah, so it's the brainchild of the current Ohio State Treasurer, Josh Mandel. Great guy. Um, the, uh, the Bitcoin program is intended to be a signal of the state's broader ambitions to remake itself in a more tech-friendly image. And that's just what we like to see. So, yeah, even oh. when you're paying tax, you can be happy about it. That's right. So Coinbase has launched OTC trading for institutional investors. So what is OTC trading then? So according to Wikipedia, um, it's over-the-counter or off-exchange trading. It's done directly between two parties without the supervision of an exchange. Now, I was actually dangerous in one of Brisbane's Telegram groups the other day. I'm just asking what the benefits of it. And yeah, basically two main benefits. You know, one is that you won't rock the price when you're making a big purchase. You know, if you want to buy a billion dollars worth of something, if you tried that on the open market, you'd shift mm. the price. 
Um, and this, the second point that Ben said in this um, Telegram group is he said exchanges might not have the liquidity needed to exit. So, yeah, it's basically you don't want to move the price around too much. And yeah. Yeah, shout out to Ben too from Crypto Catch Up. Go check out his YouTube channel if um, if you're looking for someone that does some really great educational and uh, commentary material. He's got a great YouTube channel, so we'll chuck that in the show notes. Yeah, there you go. Coinbase is getting it on the act too. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, if you wanted to make a large purchase, you'd definitely go the over-the-counter option mm, mm. because you don't want the price going up as, you, <laughs> as you're trying to buy. Um, so next bit of news, one of our favorite people, Edward Snowden, has... Uh, weighed in from Russia on the crypto situation. And he said that Bitcoin won't last, but crypto is here to stay. Yeah. So he was speaking in an interview with uh, Ben Wisner, the director of the ACLU, um, Speech, Privacy and Technology Project. Um, yeah, he said the belief which supports Bitcoin acting as a global currency will merely transfer itself to other cryptocurrencies instead of dissipating. Yeah, and it's probably better just to just to say it in his words. So he say that he said that let's say Bank of America doesn't want to process a payment for someone like me. And the old financial system, they've got an enormous amount of clout, as do their peers, and can make that happen. If a teenager in Venezuela wants to get paid in a hard currency for a web development gig they did for someone in Paris, something prohibited by local currency controls, cryptocurrencies can make it possible. Bitcoin may not yet really be private money, but it is the first free money. So going even further, he actually criticised the existing blockchain hashing paradigm, saying that neither of the two main hashing methods were great and new ones should be developed. Um, Without mincing words, he described proof of work as environmentally destructive activity slanted in favour of the rich and proof of stake as a direct handout to the rich in the hope that their greed will keep the system running. So, yeah, if you're listening, what are your thoughts? Is there another um, hashing method which would be better than proof of work, proof of state? What is it? Tell us. Yeah, because I don't think a lot of people would argue with him that he's wrong in, the, mm. in, in making those assumptions, but it's just like we don't really have anything better. We've got – this is the best we've got at the moment. incentivized people yeah, to do yeah. it. Yeah. It's cool hearing his opinion though, isn't it? Because yeah. I think um, like he's someone that a lot of people really look up to as someone who's very principled and mm. you know kind of put himself – it, at great risk and great harm to do it was right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even know that he was interested in Bitcoin or anything, but it's really nice to hear mm, him talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Even if he said it's going to fail. <laughs> so next bit of news, Switzerland has green lit the world's first crypto ETP to be listed next week. What's an ETP, Joe? So it is an exchange-traded product. And it's going to be trading uh, on Europe's fourth biggest exchange, the Six Swiss Exchange. So a crypto startup, Amon AG, has been given the green light um, to list an index fund on, on, on this stock exchange. So, Joe, you invest in a lot of index funds. What do index funds generally entail? So an index fund is, instead of you having to buy you know, 100 different companies, yep. you buy an index fund which tracks a load of different companies, meaning you by buying one product, you get holding a little holding in a bunch of different places right okay is it it's weighted to a certain percentage of different yeah so index funds will track a certain index so in this case it's a cryptocurrency index yep um so they'll reallocate their assets depending on how the market moves so for example if you were buying an index that tracked the 100 100 largest companies in america then every day those hundred companies change in size, so your index fund would 
reallocate their value, Apple's market cap drops a little bit. So the index fund drops a little bit of what they hold in Apple. Right. If you have a market share based index fund where it divides itself up by what the market, the share of the market is, yep. you're actually overexposing yourself to overvalued products. So if Apple is being, you know, people are valuing it way more than what it is worth, yep. you're actually getting overexposed to it because their market cap will be bigger. Right. The other alternative is a fundamentally based index, which actually divides up the index funds allocations based on the fundamentals of the stocks. So how good their cash flow is or their profitability ah. rather than just the total market cap. And does the fund fundamental index fund generally have a, 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 a bigger potential of upside? Than yeah. The- so studies have shown that fundamentally weighted index funds do outperform regular market cap based index funds. Right. Um, and that is a big deal because if you're making 1% a year extra in interest, mm. over your lifetime, you're mm. talking millions. Yeah. So the fees will be very slightly higher. Yep. Um, but yeah. So what type of – specify what type of index fund this is then? Is it a fundamental or a market cap? No, based so this on? is a market cap based index fund. So it's actually tracking the biggest cryptocurrencies by market share and it will allocate their assets accordingly. So currently they've got about half on Bitcoin and nearly 30% on Ripple, which has recently overtaken Ethereum to second position. So, yeah, you've got – yeah, Bitcoin, then um, yeah, Rip, then Ripple, then you got Ethereum, then Bitcoin Cash, and then a bit of Litecoin. I still got Litecoin in there. Yeah, boy. There you go. Blockstream, one of the development companies that develops for Bitcoin, has uh, and who are evil incarnate. If you talk to some uh, Bitcoin Cash proponents, <coughs> Craig Wright, um, <laughs> they've uh, just launched Simplicity which is a more expressive smart contracts language. Wow. So, yeah, their, their, their doctor, Russell Con- O'Connor, has um, proposed a blockchain programming language whose functions and semantics fit on a T-shirt. Yeah, and they've put a picture of the T-shirt up on their, uh, on their site, and I've got to say it looks more like the, uh, the maths equations that used to get put up on the, on the blackboard in, like, grade 11 and 12 than, um, than, a, than a programming language. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, in this uh, T-shirt, I see that they're using Comic Sans, so immediately I've discounted it and thrown the baby out of the bathwater. But, yeah, apparently it's a, it simplifies the programming language while allowing more expressivity than Bitcoin script. So it supposedly brings interoperability with other languages. So by attempting to be a universal compiler, it allows for smart contracts to be amended in a secure way. And it's integrated with their Elements platform, which also op- opens up opportunities to develop for the Liquid Network. Do you know what that is? No, I'm not. I don't. I, I just by complete inference, I think it might be their side chain. I know Blockchain oh. have been working on some kind of side chain project, which, look, in reality, is probably the only way they're going to be able to do this because Blockchain just isn't. Uh, sorry, Bitcoin just isn't built for contract accounts at the moment. Um, they don't really have autonomous contract accounts, which you really need to do most of the stuff you want to do with smart mm-hmm. contracts. Um, so I'm not sure whether that's what's happening on the Liquid Network. Nick, Liquid Network, they've got, it, they might be running Lightning nodes, and they might have, con- have program contract accounts or something. But yeah, look, like in theory, it sounds great. I I just don't know how they're going to achieve it on the current mm-hmm. Bitcoin network. I mean. 
if they can get big smart contracts working very reliably on the Bitcoin network and surmount all the other challenges they have, then people may decide to use it over Ethereum. So yeah, they're saying programming smart contracts will become easier um, for coders who are used to basic languages and parties who find loopholes in their contracts can come to terms mutually to make changes and even higher level languages can be compiled to simplicity. So in theory, it sounds great. In practice, it can open a bunch of room for abuse and inconvenience and yeah so it might not make smart contracts appealing and um yeah yeah like what they're doing in a way sounds a lot like what cardano i'm trying to do which is with their k framework like being able to bring in other languages and essentially convert that language into haskell or plutus their their programming languages and so you could kind of you could do a contract in solidity and then bring it over to cardano when it would just work and it'd be better it sounds kind of like what they're trying to do, but yeah, I think with anything Bitcoin, when you're talking about like upgrading the network or adding new features, it's it really just has to be a wait and see. Like we'll believe it when we see it because Bitcoin is notorious for uh, not being able to do almost anything to upgrade their protocol. Next piece of news, AI in China mistook um, an ad on a bus for an actual CEO. What do I mean? Well, since last year, so many Chinese cities have cracked down on jaywalking by they've had facial recognition cameras, la la la, and jaywalkers picked up by AI-powered surveillance cameras are identified and then shamed by displaying their photographs on public screens. Um, because how dare they jaywalk? Exactly, yeah. It's mm. complete recklessness. Anyway, so yeah, all of that. Um, and they're actually going to get WeChat and social media uh, plugins for this so that you'll get texts as soon as you've done something illegal. What? So, hello, citizens. <laughs> uh, it, all this news coming out of China, like, it, it just boggles my mind how close it is to 1984. Like, George mm. Orwell, he was a visionary, like, in the worst way. Because mm. it's like they're literally reading in a 1984 and they're like, oh, we should do this and we should do this mm. and... Yeah. yeah, and we're not very far behind. We're just letting them do it first, and then we can blame them. Anyway, so making a compelling case for change, lol, that's not going to happen, um, is the recent experience of Dong Mingzu, a chairwoman of China's biggest maker of air conditioners. She found her face splashed onto a huge screen erected along a street in the port city of Ningbo. But that system picked her up because her face was on an ad on the side of a moving bus. Oh, <laughs> but when the surveillance state is unquestionable, what do you do? Mm. Well, the surveillance state has actually said that they're going to upgrade and completely upgrade it to cut these incidents of uh, mm. false recognition in the future oh. and uh, focus on the real criminals. Mm. 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 I, like, just watch Black Mirror. Seriously, if you want, if you want to really get scared and see where things are going, just watch an episode of Black Mirror. Someone has built an airplane with no moving parts. Yeah. We can answer your look of shock with the three letters MIT. Oh, right. <laughs> it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't an ICO. Um, but yeah, researchers have used Ion Drive, which until now is a purely space-based system, to fly a model plane a short distance indoors. Yeah, so MIT researchers have flown the first airplane that has no moving parts, the aircraft... 
pack with lithium-ion batteries used an ion thruster to fly 60 metres that were available on the in the indoor flight area. So the plane weighs just over two kilograms and its engine has a thrust-to-weight ratio comparable to that of a jet engine. Really? Yeah, so Iron Drive was demonstrated 101 years ago by this rocketeer, Robert Goddard, and it's now routinely used in space, for instance, to like move satellites around. But they generate iron wind, which is they produce this wind by running 40,000 volts through a number of thin electrodes at the front of the plane's five meter wingspan. So that strips electrons off nitrogen molecules in the air, which leaves behind positively charged ions. So these ions then shoot towards a second electrode at the back. On the way, they collide with millions of air molecules, which push them along as well, hence a large volume of air. So there's a lot of electrodes sticking out. Um, and yeah, one of the next aims is to get rid of those, the, the visibility and hide them away on the wing. Right. But, um, yeah. but there's no air in space, though. Is there? So this probably wouldn't apply for space. This is more for atmospheric flight. Oh, yeah, because in space it works oppositely. So in, in space... You use this propellant really efficiently to throw it behind you as quickly as you can. Right. But here, they actually want a large volume of air, and the wind is a good way of okay. getting there. So, yeah, iron wind is air is like it's electric wind. It's the airflow induced by electrostatic forces linked to corona discharge arising at the tips of some sharp conductors, such as points or blades, um, subjected to high voltage relative to ground. Something. Interesting. It's just full on. It's, it's we've actually got like working iron drives. So yeah, chances are we'll get that militarily applied pretty soon. Well, at least that <laughs> won't be long until the loudest thing you'll hear is the bomb falling <laughs> and just a whisper. <laughs> and, and the whisper says, "Freedom, freedom." <laughs> They'll spend trillions of dollars <laughs> investing in an iron drive that just whispers freedom. <laughs> But, yeah, they say don't... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, don't look for them in people-moving aircraft anytime soon. Barrett speaks of a low number of decades, not in five years or anything like that, uh, before we can be using these in some kind of... Uh, some for some way of moving people around the planet hmm. in commercial aircraft. One day, you never know, Elon Musk might do something. So, last bit of news... The University of Wisconsin slash Madison has developed a bandage, like a wound dressing that could dramatically speed up healing in a surprising way. So, yeah, this method leverages energy generated from a patient's own body motions to apply gentle electrical pulses at the site of an injury. Yeah, so in rodent tests, the dressings recorded healing times to a mere three days compared to nearly two weeks in the normal healing process. So it could substantially uh, speed up basically promote the body's healing process to an mm. incredible level just with some electronic pulses. Hmm. It's amazing. Mm. Well, that's great. Do you know what? I find all this research, finding new techniques and things like that, essential. Great. It's awesome. Yeah. See? And it's a university doing it. Yeah. You're, a hub of you're knowledge. exorbitant fees do go to something. Intellectual freedom. Yes. Where every viewpoint counts. Yes, as long as it's the right viewpoint. 
Wherever you're joining us from, it's a pleasure having you here. Why not drop into our Telegram channel and say hello? You can find it at FOMO.show slash Telegram. So you've been reading an interesting article of late. Um, mm. The title was an honest explanation of price, hash rate and Bitcoin mining network dynamics. Where did you come across this? Yeah, so this was from our Telegram chat and it was a hodlon in our Telegram chat who's uh, who's been there for a long time now. He's, he, he's, um, he engages in a lot of the conversations that we have and he linked this. I think it was in response to someone else putting up a graph of the Bitcoin hash rate and what right. was happening with it. It's a really interesting article and I think it's really worth your while going and having a look because what it does is it actually explains the whole process of uh, running a mining company. So it basically goes through the whole process of what goes on with that and why a lot of the miners are now stopping mining and dropping off and what they may be doing as well. So it's really interesting. And he talks about things like CapEx, OpEx, which is like capital expenditure and operating expenditure, um, where the different return of investment points are for these miners. And he actually talks about how most of these miners have been mining at a loss now for quite a while, quite a a long time. And while they were prepared to operate at that, that loss, uh, while they were at what's called the all-in ROI break-even level, which is basically if you go if you go above that, uh, you make a profit on your, on your investment, and below that you make a loss. Um, they're not prepared to go past what's called their cash cost break-even level. So if they're above that, they're cash flow positive, but still potentially loss making. So they still might be making a loss, but they've got enough money to pay all their operating expenses. So they've got enough money to pay like their staff right, and right. like the power right. and that kind of stuff. So- the miners can still operate at that level when they're getting enough cash coming in to at least keep the lights on and mm-hmm. keep people happy and paid, but they're not really turning a profit and they might actually be making a loss on the books. But, um, they're not having to let people go or they might not just be having to let the main people go. But if it dips lower than that, um, then their cash flow negative. And depending on their industry view, risk appetite and in capital levels, they're more likely to shut off their mining gear entirely. So as we've watched this uh, Bitcoin price decrease even more, I think mm. basically he said that around about $8,500 at a Bitcoin market cap level, they'd still be okay. They'd still mm-hmm. be like, that's basically their all in ROI breakdown level, which mm-hmm. is where they're making a profit on their investment. Right. Below that, they're making a loss, but they're not necessarily um, doing horribly. But if they get further down to around about 4,000 or 5,000, then that's when they start becoming cash flow negative. Right. Because you've got right. to look at the way that Bitcoin works is when you mine a block, you get rewarded in a, um, uh, you know, half a Bitcoin or whatever, wherever it's at at the moment. You get rewarded in a certain amount. Um, and that's where you make your profit. That means that so these miners are feeling the squeeze, um, inefficient mining gear and high cost electricity miners are being forced off the network. Yeah, essentially, like I think it's I think the weakest players will always go out first, um, and so you might see that there's maybe some people that are running older mining equipment. Um, they haven't had the money to upgrade, but they've held on long enough because it was they weren't cash flow negative. Mm-hmm. Um, now you know now that it's dipped even more, they might be saying, "Well, we just got to turn them off. We can't afford to keep them on." So if the price comes back up. Maybe they'll turn the lights on, back on in the warehouse if they own it or they might have to sell the warehouse. And and that was another thing he went into. He went into a lot of different um, strategies that these miners or mining companies use. A lot of them, le- some of them lease their equipment. 
Other people buy their equipment and own that equipment. Some people lease the land. Other people own the land. You know, there's all these different... Some people locate in areas that are very friendly from an energy price perspective or they do deals with power plants. Mm -hmm. Other people go somewhere where it's really, really cold Mm. and they don't need a lot of cooling. Mm. You know, there's just all these different factors that go into it. Um, So it was a really, really enlightening article and it kind of explains why the hashing power, if you've been following it of Bitcoin, has now been going down as the price has really come down even further as well. Wow. Bitcoin issuance has effectively remained the same, but they're yep. adjusting the difficulty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like a pure free market because the network will react to however many people try and get on and earn Bitcoin. Right. So the, the amount of Bitcoin and the, the blocks getting generated will always be pretty much the same. Um, it's just that the more people, the more profitable it gets or the more money that people can make, obviously the more people that want to compete in the competition, mm-hmm. so the competition becomes harder, which means you've got to invest more money, which means that you're better at the competition then the competition becomes harder again, you know. And so there's actually a really interesting quote there where he, uh, he says that Bitcoin mining costs will always tend towards the price of Bitcoin minus a narrow competitive margin, but those... That's not instant. It's probably near instant because, you know, if you're a company and you are, you're in the business of Bitcoin mining, it's a competition. It's, it's a game mm. at, at its lowest level. And so if you're only one of four miners and you're only got having to have two PCs to mine 25% of the Bitcoin, then you're happy. But then if four more miners come along with four PCs because they're looking at the price and they're going, well, if we get four PCs, then we can still make a little bit of money, but not as much. But everyone else just has two PCs. So we should make more Bitcoin quicker. Um, if you're that person with a, a, just two PCs and you're looking at that and you're going, well, we got to buy more PCs mm. and we can make it work because Bitcoin's now more expensive. So we can cover our costs and mar- yeah, our margin will shrink. And then more people go into it and then yeah. the difficulty rate increases. Yeah. It's a brilliant system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's pure. It's almost pure free market economics, which is really interesting to watch. So what happens next? Um, According to the article, as the price does its thing, hash rate will follow and settle into whatever new market conditions are installed. Old, inefficient gear and high-cost producers are out, and until the price increases again, the hash rate can only increase by miners lowering lowering their operational expenditures, so lowering their rent, their staff, wages, things like that. Oh, here we go. They can do that by sourcing cheaper electricity, installing more efficient mining equipment, or generally cutting costs. Yeah, and and look, he he comes out and says there's no such thing, no such risk of mining collapse or any other clickbait nonsense you might read out there. He said for such a collapse to occur, the Bitcoin price would need to immediately plunge to near zero, thus triggering virtually the entire mining network to shut down and therefore preventing the requisite blocks to reach the next, next difficult reset from being mined for months or even years. Perhaps possible, but not a likely scenario in our view. And it finishes off with Bitcoin isn't dead. Not this time, nor the 326 times before. That was a cool piece. Yeah, so we'll, we'll put the links to that in the show notes. Uh, there will be a second part. So if we're on the game, we'll, um, we'll share the news of the second part when it comes out. If not, then you will have to keep track of it yourself. So this week in our privacy and security segment, we normally talk about ways that you can mitigate your risk in a privacy or a security setting. We generally give you like a... A program or a tool or something, but Joe, you last week witnessed a real life hack 
literally before your eyes. Where I work is an IT consulting firm, and we have a whole team of cybersecurity specialists. Um, now, these people break into systems all day, every day, our customer systems with permission. Um, so they take the hacker mindset and they're like, okay, how do we hack these systems? How do we hack these big, big enterprises to try and keep them secure, to try and find ways to get around their systems to basically minimize the threat of losing data because if you're a big enterprise you've got a lot of personal information if you just saw the news the other week um marriott hotels group had uh, a big hack 500 million customers data was Mm. stolen 326 million of those included name date of birth address gender um passport number entry date exit date uh, phone numbers email addresses all of that that's that's enough to get through almost any identity, you know, password recovery system or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and potentially even credit card information. Yeah, well. That's a whole other ball game in itself. But the key point is enterprises have a lot of personal information. Yeah. And they have a duty to keep it secure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's why we have a team of hackers who test security. So, on Friday, I was chatting to one of these hackers saying, how do I secure websites? And he was showing me a few different tools that they use to examine the security of websites. Um, fascinating stuff. He launched up a few of the websites I've been working on and almost destroyed them. Like, <laughs> it's, it, it's insane. Like, uh, there's me thinking, oh, I've got some security plugins yep. that will keep it safe. No, no such thing. Like, yep. they break things. If you have an input field on your website where you can put in text, they're going to try and break it. So wow. they'll put in all kinds of script to try and see if they can trick what's on the other end. Um, but yeah, so a bunch of different tools and the hacker will try anything yep. to get through. But yeah, they set up, um, they had this server as part of this capture the flag competition, which is basically there's a server out there, which um, you have permission to hack and it has a vulnerability, but you don't know what it is. So they showed me um, two of these hackers were sitting in a room. They had their computer connected up to the screen um, and they had all of these terminal windows with code open um, and he, ha- he was actually switching between five of these all on one monitor seamlessly. And these two hackers were, you could see their minds bouncing off each other as they were working out how to break this So system. was it a competition or was it like teamwork trying to break um, in? So usually it's just you, just one of them would do it by themselves. Yeah. But they were both taking me through it because I was really interested. Yeah. So they were actually, yeah, I was seeing the two great minds bouncing ideas off each other. And it actually goes to show that when people team up to you hack into systems, it can get very dangerous. Yeah. Especially when it's organized. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, you're you're watching this capture the flag thing going on. So they're scanning for vulnerabilities. They're getting all this information. It ends up, what they do is they discover that there's a way that they can upload files to this server without authentication. So they upload this file specific for that operating system, which when they access that in the web browser, connecting to that computer... Yeah, actually, that server sent a connection request back to their computer, giving them a low-level account. Now, it didn't give them admin rights to own the machine, but it actually didn't take very long for these guys to actually connect back in, find more vulnerabilities within the operating system, which was Windows on this one. They found a bunch of vulnerabilities and just pushed one of them. Yeah. Um, And I think it was using a print spooler service, a vulnerability that was known about for years, to... um, yeah, that hadn't been patched on this operating system. 
and then they use that to escalate from a regular account to an admin account. So it's called privileged escalation. It's called Privesk, I believe they call yeah. it in the industry. So it's like, oh, if I've got just a low-level account, how can I get administrative control? Mm, which you're not meant to be able to get. Yeah, and you try and do this at school when you, you know, use command prompt or something like that when yeah. you're a kid. Yeah. But he was so fascinating watching this in real life. And he, in a matter of 20 minutes, this whole server was theirs. And he's insane what you can do and how anybody, if they actually start learning how to do this, within a few years you could actually get pretty good at this because yeah. all of these vulnerabilities that are out there are published on the web. And you, you told me about a, a, a package they essentially would deploy on these servers which checked for all, all of these different vulnerabilities yeah, that people knew yeah. of. Yeah, so there, there was a tool that they used that they basically just go, run this and see what vulnerabilities there are. And it just comes back. Now, usually 20 years ago, you would have had to spend hours testing all kinds of things this actually just scans the system and it goes, cool, it's this operating system, cool, it's running this um, software and it's using this and the account details are this and we have this connected and these programs installed. And then it's like, okay, so of those, there are a bunch of potential vulnerabilities, we're going to scan them. And it's like within a, within 30 seconds, it had said, okay, so these are potential vulnerabilities that you should explore. And then they ended up like Googling these vulnerabilities, like yeah. well, not actually using Google, but they actually were, they had a database of these vulnerabilities in them. So they actually look it up and then there are, you know, other programmers and you actually in, in these tests that they're actually taking as hackers, they will be typing out these scripts manually. Because they're generally a part of the same community, aren't they? Like the black hat and the white hat hackers, all the same sites looking at all the same stuff. It's almost like a bit of a game between the two of them. Yeah. yeah that they yeah, all yeah. have the same information mm, mm. of all the vulnerabilities and everything else. If there's one lesson that I got from it, it is always... Now, this is still not going to protect you from hackers, but it's going to minimise your chances. Always update your systems. Mm. If you've switched off updates or if you haven't updated your systems in a long time, do it. If you run a web server, update every few days or as every couple of days because if there's a vulnerability on a plugin that you might use for your website um, if there's a, a vulnerability for it people can run bots that scan the internet for all websites that run your run that plugin wow. and then they can just it's very easy to actually check which version of the plugin they're on just using a bit of script that can yeah. crawl the web and then so you can crawl 200,000 shops you find that 5,000 have still got this critical vulnerability and you could actually go through all of those and maybe you know break into like a checkout system or something like that wow. really easily. Um, it, within a few seconds of him, I, when I asked him to, to one of these guys to show me some of the tools on hacking websites or finding vulnerabilities, he pointed at a domain and within a few seconds he'd already told me which plugins were there and which routes in there were. Wow. Um, and it's insane. And they're basically like, if there's any plugins that you have that use the database, you should probably disable them because it's very easy for them to actually get into those databases. Jeez. And you've got to lock things down. Like, yeah. if you don't think that you understand the security, get somebody who does. Because I learned after this, I thought I could lock down a website basically. Nope. Mm. Like, they could. They told me the usernames of the website. I didn't know that you could do that. Just pull out the list of usernames. No, you can do that with a tool. Wow. Without even having an admin account or anything special. Well, I mean, what I gained from what you were telling me is that it, it seems like it's a lot easier 
for people who are trying to break things or break into things than to defend against it. You know, all you need, all they need is one chink in the armor yeah. and the whole thing yeah. comes unraveled. Yeah. Mm. Whereas you're trying to like shore up all the different vulnerabilities. And every day you've got thousands of computers. Like if you're a business, you've got all your mobile, all your employees use mobile phones yeah. on your network. Yeah. And if your network's not secure in any way, then things can get in. And I guess what what you're saying too there is that they can get access to, and we're not just talking about web servers. It's 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 almost anything, you know. It's it's, um, I mean, yeah, like you said, the Marriott got got hacked, you know, and all those people had their data compromised. So it is paramount then that people are thinking about this, isn't it? Like you can't just sit around and think this isn't going to affect me. Oh, I've got nothing to hide. I don't need to be private. I don't need to just be secure. Like so, the the example is. Would you be concerned if everyone knew your credit card number, for example? I think nearly everyone would mm, be. You know, mm. so that's something you've got to hide. Mm, um, mm. Would you be concerned if everyone knew your name, date of birth, and address? Mm, mm. I think most people would be concerned if that was complete public knowledge, especially if it was attached to their passport number, mm. um, or if people knew their passwords or their usernames or their emails and passwords. You wonder if, as time goes on. <laughs> You've got privacy policies and terms and conditions on websites. Mm. You wonder if in the future they're actually going to have a cybersecurity policy that people actually all have saying, here's, the, here's, our, here's our method. We test mm. our website every two weeks. Yep. We get a professional firm to make sure our customer data is secure because every day there are more vulnerabilities than ever before yep. because we're opening ourselves up to this. And that means that every time you give your credit card information or your mobile phone number, it's another potential person who can get hacked. If the Marriott's hacked, it's going to be insane. Yeah. So we're going to have to see a movement where people are like putting their hand up and saying, we have a policy on this yep. and this is what we're doing. Yeah. And look, I can tell you now that, because I, I do a fair amount of software development agreements and things like that for uh, for businesses, you know, a lot of things that touch the internet. And those are the kind of clauses I'm putting into, I'm telling, recommending to clients to put into their agreements, uh, especially if they're getting a piece of software developed, for example, mm. um, because it's not in any kind of agreements. And most people and most lawyers won't even think of that. Uh, but I make very sure that there's something in there that says, this is who is responsible if there is a breach. Wow. And this is who is responsible for making sure that everything is secure. And even stuff like open source. You know, I was working on one today and it's going to be a big project, big big piece of software. And I specifically put a clause in there about open source wow. because a lot of these vulnerabilities that people find is, uh, you know, someone copies something off um, Stack Overflow or they clone a GitHub repository um, from a piece of open source software, but then they don't update it by the time the app's delivered. Mm. You know, say so use that code from three months ago, it stays in their workflow. But by that time, the open source community has discovered a vulnerability, they've patched it, everything on that branch is fine, but the branch that wow. they've forked and used the code for in their software may not, you know? And if you're an everyday business, you don't know any of this stuff, you don't, you're not able to look at the code. So someone... And, and that's what happens when these things go wrong. The fingers start pointing. And yeah, I think it's something that everyone really does need to be thinking about. Wow. Right? That's, the cybersecurity thing's actually, that's something I've never heard before. But mm. I think that you're probably right. I mean, especially with the way GDPR is going now and uh, a lot of these cybersecurity laws, I don't think it'll be too long before it is like a best practice, mm. especially, if, especially if you're taking people's money. I think if you're taking people's money because you can use something like Shopify or a lot of people use Shopify or um, WooCommerce mm -hmm. or different plugins to do their commerce, but 
generally you're still capturing the data on your mm. website. Mm. It's just a plug-in. And a lot of people, a lot of companies are just keeping their personal, like private customer information and basic Excel spreadsheets on v- ancient systems. Yeah. Which is giving, which is actually irresponsible. But yeah. Well, it's it's. I think it's more and more going to become something that people are liable for when they're breached because it's it's hard in today's day and age to say that you were ignorant of it you know mm. it's hard to say oh I didn't know that it was a risk because man maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago but today everyone's talking about breaches and cybersecurity, and we saw what happened with Equifax last mm. year and Marriott I mean that's that's huge I don't know what's going to happen but I'm sure there's going to be some kind of class action lawsuit about that they're going to lose a lot of money for from it and those questions are going to be asked you know what what were you doing to protect the mm, data because mm. they always say afterwards oh we're now bringing on a cyber security firm and we're like you can't shut the gate when the horse is bolted that's right well it's like building a town with no walls in medieval times you know like mm. you're just asking for someone to come in and mm. kill your populace you know mm, like mm, mm. if it's there like it's something that people need to be thinking about mm. so well, what i'm saying is if your company looks after private customer information in any way it's worth bringing on a cybersecurity firm a couple of times a year. To, they can do certain services. One is saying, look, if a hacker was to look at your company, what entry points could they potentially find? They'll search your site. There's probably a login page that's sitting in Google that is indexed. Mm. All kinds of things. They'll say, what is publicly accessible to a hacker? And then sort of, what are your threats? What are your risks? Can I be hacked? There are a few different, like there are a bunch of... Cybersecurity industry is going to go through a massive shortfall. Yep. Um, oh, I saw some stats the other day about like the num the amount of shortfall in this industry. Yep. Because there's it, it's it's a it's a small niche at the moment, isn't it? Which is going to be an increasingly bigger massive niche as time goes on, especially as things get more digital. Mm. And look, that what the other thing it does to put my lawyer hat on. The other thing it does if you get that cybersecurity review twice a year mm-hmm. and you get some procedures in place with a reputable company, mm-hmm. that's actually you pushing the risk away from your company mm. because then you can say, well, no, we got experts in to take care of this. Yeah. It's not our fault. It's their fault. Um, and generally if they're good at what they do, it won't be a big issue. And look, you can't beat everything, but it's it's about- It's showing that you've at least- Exactly, you thought something. about it, you tried to mitigate it. Um, so you at least tried to build the wall around your medieval town. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then look, and, and you couldn't build the wall, you know, but you got some builders in to build the wall and they guaranteed the quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what more are you meant to do? Yes, yeah. that's what you'd say. What more was I meant to do? Yeah, I'm not a wall builder. I'm not, yeah, I'm not a wall builder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a town runner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> We're really taking these, these analogies way too far. Yeah, yeah, but... I mean, it has been a bit of a longer privacy and security segment, but I think, look, if this has scared you a little bit or if it's, if it's kind of finally resolved in your head to, to do something about it, you can go back through our other episodes. We generally cover a topic each and every episode about something to do with privacy and security. But like really quick, Joe, like if you had to recommend people just a few things to, to do to take themselves from like 100% risk, maybe down to like a 10% or 5% risk compared to everyone else, what would you do? Um, from a corporate perspective or from your own perspective, update your software, 
That's number one. It reduces your risk of vulnerabilities. Next, I'd take multi-factor authentication. If a hacker manages to get their hands on your password, at least if you had the app on your phone with those crazy numbers that flips around every few seconds, it means that you need your password and that to get in. So it reduces the risk of attack. Then you've got um, having antivirus, anti-malware stuff is really important because it means that the threats are coming every day. You're going to stop. Using ad blockers, things like that, pretty useful as well. That's all I can think of off the top of my head. What do you have to add to that? Yeah, I'm always talking about Linux. I think if you're using a desktop or a laptop, it's it's a really good idea to maybe check that out. It's a lot more accessible than it used to be, and it's generally a lot more secure. It's not a leaky ship uh, like the Windows, especially, but even Apple isn't isn't incredible. Um, so that's one step you can definitely take. Think about where you're storing your emails. Um, think mm-hmm. and how, how you're managing them because emails are quite vulnerable already. And who you're giving your data to. And who you're giving your data to as well. Seriously consider, so whenever I sign up for things now, whether it be online or in person, and I don't need to hand over identification, I never give my real name. There are some Chrome extensions that will actually fill in forms for you with just random information. Yep. Which is it's called like form testing plugins, but those could be useful. Yeah, and, and look, a lot of sites, a surprising amount of sites now let you pay with things like Bitcoin wow. and other payment methods, methods yeah. like that. And apart from everything else, all the ideological stuff we talk about, the benefit of paying with Bitcoin is you can generate a different payment address for every single payment. And if someone gets access to that payment address, there's nothing they can do. They can't bill your account. Whereas if someone gets access to your credit card, all they need is those numbers and they can start billing. Uh, numbers mm. in the merchant account, you mm. know. So I'd um, I'd definitely take advantage of something like that as well. Privacy and security. We are unsecure. We're not <laughs> private. I saw, I saw a strange article um, recently about someone who had been working at the SEC and had apparently they'd found out he'd had a questionable past. Mm. And I think they were... They were holding him in prison or they were going to put him in prison or... Weird. Yeah, it's strange. But huh. I don't think it could be Dan. Dan always seems to fall on his on his feet. Mm, like a cat. Like a cat. Nine lives. Yeah, like an evil cat. Ooh. Anyway, we'll just have yeah. to wait to hear from him yeah. again, I guess. Yeah. Do you know someone who might enjoy this? Uh, please feel free to share it with them. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our telegram at FOMO.show slash telegram. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And Facebook at Facebook.com slash the FOMO show. And YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at The FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. Je m'appelle Joël. Je suis le présentateur. Because sometimes I'm really getting into the end credits, yeah. and I'm like just enjoying myself, you know. Dun, 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 yeah. dun, 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 dun. And then all of a sudden, it's like. Mm-hmm.
You know, oh, like, yeah. I'm like, no, not yet. Oh, man. But if you leave it too long, then people might think we don't have any it's true. bloopers it's at the true. end at all. Yeah. And they might swap to listening to Joe Rogan's interview with Jordan Peterson. Yeah, which true. was amazing. But have you listened to that yet? The latest one. Yeah. Oh man, I listened to it when I was going to bed, so I've only actually heard the first hour and the last oh, man. hour. But he was he, oh. he's so clear. Yeah. He's so clear in his vision of what he's talking about. Yep. And I can't even remember what he's talking about now. But Or oh, his main he's, thing, at least what he's doing at the moment, is like people taking responsibility. It's ba- he's like, you need to find meaning in your life. It's like because happiness is fleeting. Everyone pursues happiness. His, his, his premise is basically, and he's, just, he's a clinical psychologist with a lot of experience, and his premise is basically like, it's wrong to pursue happiness. It's nice to enjoy happiness, and it's good to enjoy happiness when it comes, but it's like happiness is fleeting, and life's hard. So you've got to have more than just happiness to push you through life. And so you, um, you want to try and find some meaning. Which is a really, like, yeah, it's funny, like, even just listening to him and Joe kind of talks to him about, well, why do you think people are trying to heckle you and stop you talking? And because it's funny, he gets, he does get lambasted by a certain portion of society mm. for even just saying that, you know, and just telling people that they need to find purpose and, you know, stop whinging and complaining and just go out and do stuff. Um, that's basically it. But the conversation, it was, for me, it was really interesting because I've, I've listened to a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff. Um, I'm like working my way through one of his audio books. Twelve um, Rules for Life. Yeah, that one. Yeah, the newer one. An yeah. antidote to chaos. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is it's brilliant. Like mm. he's he's very very good. Um, but it, Joe Rogan is so good at just um, we saw it with Elon Musk as well. Having a conversation with people and getting to a different area of their brain. You know, mm. like getting them to talk about other mm. stuff that you never hear them talk mm. about. He's so conversational and he asks some really interesting questions. So, yeah, like you kind of hear a different side of Jordan Peterson than I think you you've heard before, which is which was mm. just so cool. It's three hour three hour interview. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think I got the first 45 minutes before I knocked out of sleep. But <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's so I, Jordan Peterson is one of the people you can just listen to. Yeah. Just all the time. He's just hyper intelligent. Mm. Yeah, mm. very, and he, he knows what he doesn't know too, which is what I really like about him. He'll, he'll, um, he'll. If someone asks him a question and he doesn't know the answer, we're like, oh, I don't know the answer. That's really interesting. If this makes it into the show, we'll put that in the show notes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh right, and we all know there's going to be a hyper crash anyway, so. Stating the obvious. Moving on. <laughs> okay. I feel like we've. I feel like this episode. I mean, we've delivered it very positively. Yeah. But I feel like there's a dark undertone. It's, most of the news has been very negative. <laughs> Apart for the last couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, whoever's editing this, just, just, yeah, pay attention. Yep. No, I'll do the edit. Um. You. You happy to do the edit yep, this time? Yep, yep. I've got nothing one. on this weekend. Oh, so yeah. are we going to do a Christmas? Rocking around. Will we do a Christmas episode Christmas next time or we'll do one more and then a holiday episode? Next one is going to be the Christmas one. Because otherwise it's going to be or the will it be New the Year's Day is going to yeah, be... Yeah, no, I think we ought to do the Christmas one. Next? That, I think the next one's going to be a normal one. The one after has to be... So the New Year one. We just do it beforehand because we don't. That's we don't need to do that one live. So we can both do it. 
We could just both do an episode next time. One of us could do the actual episode, the other could do the Christmas episode, mm. and then we've got it primed, ready to go, release it. Because we won't be able to have much news, though. I don't think we'll... I think the Christmas episode will literally just be us being like, hope you're enjoying your holidays. We, we're taking some time off as well. So we thought we'd put together a little highlight reel of uh, the last year and a half of the FOMO show. Yeah. You know? And yeah, we, then we just like, some of the best moments of the FOMO show. That sounds and good. And we could narrate it a bit, like as we yeah, kind of, you yeah. know, like whoever's editing it can like be like, you know, this was us early on. Like we go right back to the first episode, be like, this was our first episode. Um, you know, and, then, and then like, we'll do some Jordan, do some Dan. Um, we're like, you, and you remember that time when, uh, when what was his name? Um, Trader Tim came oh, yeah. on. Trader Tim. Yeah, we didn't invite him back. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So in our privacy and security segment, uh, Joe, you witnessed a penetration test. <laughs> Hang on, I better enter that again. <laughs> okay. So in our privacy and security segment, uh, we generally give. You know, a tip of a tool or, or something, some kind of. <laughs> Tell me you didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> so that's the problem. Once you start, you can't say anything that isn't innuendo or a double entendre. <laughs> <laughs> 